God's people are going to have to recapture the importance of prayer. And even if we believe we understand something about it, we must have a renewed commitment to prayer. To being a praying people, to be prayer warriors, to be what God has called us to be on behalf of other people. When you study the history of the church, whether you're studying the book of Acts or you're studying recent history, you will discover that the history of the church and its success is in direct proportion to prayer. The great revival in the 80s in the nation of Korea was largely due, when you went to study it, was due to the fact that they have prayer mountains where people go and they spend all Friday night and all day Saturday fasting and praying for their nation. Some 100,000 people in Korea will be there on any given Friday night, spread out on mountains around the cities, praying for people to be saved. As a result, the largest church in the world is in Korea. They have 200,000 members. They have nine services. Their members can't even come to all the services. They have to ask them to stay away because lost people need to have room to get in. When you go to America and you find a church like the Brooklyn Tabernacle, where I'll get to be in a few days, and you go to Brooklyn Tabernacle and you find a church that started with 12 people on broken down benches, and now 5,000 people gather in that church on Sundays, and 3,500 on Tuesday nights for prayer meetings. You understand why they're a church that sees bisexuals and transvestites and prostitutes and pimps and drug addicts converted to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because they have become such a praying place that out of prayer, God has birthed for them a burden for other people. And so I want us to talk about what it means to be a praying church today. I want us to go back to the book of Acts. We'll look at a number of scriptures, but first of all, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 11 because we're going to talk about the history of a praying church. There was a hunger in the heart of the disciples to know something about the prayer life of Jesus. They did not ask him to give them the ability to walk on water or to do great miracles. They did not ask him that they could teach like he did. They did not say, Lord, uh, help us to sway the crowds. In Luke chapter 11, we find the one thing that impressed the disciples most was when they listened to Jesus pray. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. These disciples were impressed with the prayer life of Jesus which is probably the most unimpressive thing in the typical Christian today. We are not good praying people for the majority of Americans. Most Americans say they believe in God or say that they worship a God, but when asked, even pastors, the overwhelming majority of pastors in America say they spend less than three minutes a day with God. 
No wonder our churches are powerless. No wonder our ministries don't make a difference in the communities in which we serve. The most impressive thing about Jesus was his praying. It is the least impressive thing about most of our churches today. But notice that God comes and Jesus gives them clear instruction. They say, Lord, teach us. He didn't say, well, no, you're just going to have to figure it out. So, So he gave them a model prayer. This is not the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is contained in John 14, 15, 16, and 17. That this is the model prayer that he gives us as an example of how we are to pray. And I want you to see four things there in his prayer. First of all, prayer is focused on the Father. Our Father. Now, we have a tendency to start our prayers like this. Lord, I need this, I need this, I need this, I want this. Lord, you need to help me with this. i got to get this. Lord, I want this, and, and my wife needs this, and my kids need this. And, and we, start, we start our praying talking about ourselves. Jesus says when you pray, first spend some time recognizing who you're talking to. You're talking to your Father. Honor Him, respect Him, worship Him. Give him the glory that is due his name. Our Father who is worthy of honor. Secondly, prayer is the platform to address needs. Once I have spoken to God about who he is, then I can address needs, my daily bread. Lord, here are the things I need. Here's what's going on in my life. You don't have to be afraid to ask your heavenly Father to meet the needs in your life. The scripture says, if you being evil will give good gifts to your children, won't God do more than that for you? So you bring your needs before God. Sometimes we don't have because we never ask God because we try to fix our problems and meet our needs on our own. The third thing about this prayer is that it changes relationships. He talks there about forgiveness and forgiving those who are indebted to us. One of the things about praying people, praying people cannot hold grudges. Praying people cannot be jealous and envious and spiteful and mean-spirited because in a prayer environment, God's going to address you about that area of your life and that person of your life that you will not forgive. And then when you learn that God has forgiven you, then you also learn it's easy for you to give somebody else. Fourthly, prayer is where we get honest with God. Lead us not into temptation. Our power was off last night, so the last hour and a half or so that I thought I was going to have to Uh, look over the message and stuff, I found myself having nothing else to do but pray. Imagine that. And after some appropriate time, I just spent some time with the Lord, and I said, now Lord, here's some things that I know that I need to get square with you on. And I probably mentioned about 35 things, and that was probably just Saturday's list. But I had some things I had to get right. Had some things in that, and just about the time I'd think I'd get through, and the Lord would say, Now you forgot one or two. I hate it when the Lord's so nosy into my business. But you know, prayer is where you get honest with God. You can be honest with God in prayer, He already knows, He already sees. We don't need to put up facades with Him in our prayer life. Lord, here's what I'm struggling with, here's what I'm dealing with. Here's Here's a person I have a problem with. Here's something that's going on in my life that I don't like. You can be honest with God about those temptations that come into your life. And that's hard work. Now, this clear instruction by the Lord is the result of a request. But I want you to notice the church obviously 
carried this over. They didn't just say, well, that was for us now. We got a little secret with Jesus, and so we're going to hold on to this, and we're not going to tell anybody because this is just for us. No, they shared it in the church in Acts, and they've also shared it with us in the Scripture. And I want you to turn to the book of Acts, and you will not have time to, to look up all these Scriptures. You may have time to just find them quickly. But I want us to take a quick walk through Acts and look at how prayer impacted and permeated that early church and how it made such a difference in the life of the church. What the difference was, was that in a prayer environment, everything began to change. First of all, in chapter 1 and verse 14, it was a prelude to power. It was a prelude to power. Before the Holy Spirit came, they were in that upper room praying. If a church wants power, or if you want power in your life, then the prelude to that power is you spending time in, in prayer with God. By the way, the filling of the Holy Spirit is never an asking, it's a receiving. What God has already commanded you to do. You just receive, Lord, I accept by faith that when I do what you tell me to do, that I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. That's a prelude to power. Secondly, not only was it a prelude to power, they prayed seeking God's guidance in decision-making, Acts 1.24. When the church was trying to make decisions about where to take the next step and what to do in their decision-making, they prayed and sought out God on what they should do, who they should select. Thirdly, in a prayer environment, they discipled new believers. They discipled new believers, Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. Now in Acts 2.42 and really 42 through verse 47 is, is the model of the early church, what they did on a daily and a weekly basis. But if you'll notice in that, when they found these new believers, they discipled them, they taught them what Jesus had taught them. They passed it on. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, the things that you have learned and heard and seen in me, these impart to faithful men who will in turn teach others also. So Jesus taught the disciples. The disciples came and taught these new believers how to pray, how to be prayer warriors. Sometimes we just throw new believers in the mix and say, y'all figure it out. We need to help them to understand what is involved in talking to God and in praying. But fourthly, the prayer was a spiritual discipline. At the time of prayer, Peter and John went up to the temple to pray. They did not forsake the spiritual discipline of prayer. They didn't forsake the hour of prayer. They continued to go and spend time with God. Acts 3 and verse 1. They prayed, number 5, when they were in trouble. Acts 4 and verse 24. Now that's about the only time most of us pray is when we're in trouble. You know, if I'm in trouble, I always want a direct line to God. I mean, I don't want to be put on hold. I, I, want, to, I want to go straight there. And, but these people prayed not just when they were in trouble. They had already been praying long before this had happened, long before persecution had come. Jesus had told them it would come. Now it's here, and they said, Lord, we're, we're so blessed to be persecuted for you. Now there's a different perspective on trouble, but that comes in a prayer environment. Next day we realize that prayer and the proclamation of the word were inseparable. When they selected the deacons, the apostle said, it is not good for us to forsake prayer and the preaching of the word, the proclamation of the word. They put those two things together. Acts 6 and verse 4. Number 7. Prayer was in response to persecution. Not only trouble, but now Stephen, the first martyr, is killed for his faith. 
And when he is being stoned to death by these religious people who are offended and threatened by this gospel of Jesus Christ, by Jesus being the Messiah, and they're throwing these stones at him, Stephen doesn't point his finger at them and say, one day God will get you. In a prayer environment, he says, Father, don't hold this to their account. Don't hold them guilty for what they're doing to me. See how prayer changes your outlook on things? It changes us in times of persecution. Number eight, prayer was offered in support of other believers. Acts chapter 8, verse 15. The gospel began to spread. They began to go check it out, and they went to pray with these new believers. Number nine, they prayed for divine intervention in Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12 and verse 12, they prayed for divine intervention. Number 13, number 10, I'm already to 13, good grief. Hello. A praying church is a mission-minded church. They began to be concerned about other people. And a church is concerned about missions in proportion to its prayer life. We get a heart for the world when we get the God of this world on our hearts and in our hearts. Number 11, prayer is a priority for church leaders, Acts 14. Church leaders should never make decisions in their flesh out of their own wisdom or quick thoughts. They need to make it in a prayer environment. Number 12, prayer and praise are inseparable. Paul and Silas were in prison. Just like prayer and the proclamation of the word were inseparable, prayer and praise are inseparable. Paul and Silas are in prison and they're praising God and singing hymns and praying, and what does God do? God shows up in that prison. Jailer gets saved, and they get a chance to share the gospel. Amazing things happen when people understand that prayer and praise go together. Number 13, prayer was an intricate part of the encouraging ministry, or you could even say the pastoral care ministry of the church. They cared about people, they got involved in their lives, and prayer was a part of that encouraging ministry. I want to recommend a book to you. I've recommended it to you before, and I hope that you've gotten it. If you have, this may be redundant. But I want to recommend a book by Jim Simbler called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. It ought to be required reading for people who want to go further with God. But when Jim Simbler wrote this book, the pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle, he wrote it as a story and an illustration of what God has done in his church because of prayer the change that has been made in that church. I, I have been around some of his people and I have been around some of this prayer band and I have listened to them pray and, and I have asked some of them to pray. And you know, in a Baptist church, if you ask somebody to pray, they say, okay, we'll do that. You ask somebody at Brooklyn Tabernacle to pray, they stop right there and pray for you. Doesn't matter if it's in the middle of a hotel or wherever it is, they're just going to stop and pray for you. And they may pray loud for you. I mean, I had two guys praying for me, and they were praying real loud prayers. Dear God! And I'm going, dear God, there are people watching us. <laughs> I mean, these guys prayed for me. But I want you to hear what Symbola says. Am I the only one who gets embarrassed when religious leaders in America talk about having prayer in public schools? We don't even have prayer in church. Out of humility, you would think we would keep quiet on the subject until we practice what we preach in our own congregations. I'm sure that the Roman emperors didn't have prayer to God in their schools, but then the early Christians didn't seem to care about what Caligula and Claudius or Nero did. How could any emperor stop God? How, in fact, could the demons of hell make headway when God's people prayed and called upon his name? It would be impossible. 
In the New Testament, we don't see Peter and John wringing their hands and saying, oh, what are we going to do? Caligula is bisexual, and he wants to appoint a horse to the Roman Senate. What a terrible model of leadership. How are we going to respond to this outrage? Let's not play games with ourselves. Let's not divert attention away from the weak prayer life of our churches. In Acts 4, when the apostles were unjustly arrested, imprisoned, and threatened, they didn't call for a protest. They didn't reach for some political leverage. Instead, they headed to a prayer meeting. Soon the place was vibrating with the power of the Holy Spirit. The apostles had this instinct. When in trouble, pray. When intimidated, pray. When challenged, pray. When persecuted, pray. The British translator J.B. Phillips, in writing the preface to his edition of Acts, wrote, It is impossible to spend several months in close study of this remarkably short book without being profoundly stirred and, to be honest, disturbed. The reader is stirred because he is seeing Christianity, the real thing, in action for the first time in human history. The newborn church is vulnerable as any human child, having neither money, influence, nor power in the ordinary sense, is setting forth joyfully and courageously to win the pagan world for God through Christ. Yet we cannot help feeling disturbed as well as moved. For this surely is the church as it was meant to be. It is vigorous and flexible. For these are the days before it ever became fat and short of breath through prosperity or muscle-bound overorganization. These men did not make acts of faith. They believed. They did not say their prayers. They really prayed. They did not hold conferences on psychosomatic medicines. They simply healed the sick. But if they were uncomplicated and naive by modern standards, we have ruefully to admit that we are open, they were open to God on the Godward side in the way that is almost unknown today. Open to the Godward side. That's what God's called the church to be. Maybe it sounds naive. Maybe it sounds too simple in the times in which we live and all the technology that we have, but the truth of the matter is, we don't have the power they had. And they had it because they were in a prayer environment filled with the Holy Spirit. Secondly, how to pray for a church. There's some how-tos in praying for a church. When Paul prays in Ephesians, he says that we're to, to see God do some things so that all generations forever and ever will know the abundant surpassing greatness of God. What happens is, if a church is not a praying church, then we raise up children and young people who are not praying people, and thus when they become the leaders in the church in their time, they will be fleshly and carnal in their reasoning. The reason the church ought to be a praying church is because we care enough about our children and our grandchildren, those that will come along behind us, to leave them a godly example about how a church ought to think and how a church ought to function. Not by programs and not by stuff, but by prayer. And so what are you to pray for? Let me give you two or three things, and, and I do not intend in this point to sound self-serving because that's not it. But as I said to the earlier crowd, and when this service is broadcast on television, there are people in churches all across this community and all across this area that watch us on television, and one of the things I hope to do is to help people in their churches Pray for their pastors, because I think their pastors need to be prayed for. 
1,000 pastors in the Southern Baptist Convention every year leave the ministry. Something's got to change. Somebody's got to stand in the gap for the pastors. And so I would ask you to pray for the anointing of the Holy Spirit on your pastor. Well, let me just give you, I'm not going to do a word study on anointing, but the word simply means to authorize or to set apart for a particular work or service. And I want to ask you to turn to two scripture passages, and these are passages that I would ask you to pray for me. First one is found in 1 Samuel 16 and verse 13. 1 Samuel 16 and verse 13. These are words that I would like for you to pray for me if you would. When you think about me or when you think about praying for me, then I would ask that you pray these scripture verses for my life. 1 Samuel 16 and verse 13. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. What I would ask you to pray is that God's Spirit would be on my life in power. I don't want to perform, I don't want to minister, I don't want to serve in the strength of my flesh or my abilities. I want to do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is something that I'd ask you to pray for me. Secondly, it's found in Psalm 89. Psalms 89 and verse 20. Psalms 89 and verse 20. Again, this is referring to David. I have found David my servant, and with my sacred oil I have anointed him. My hand will sustain him. Surely my arm will strengthen him. No enemy will subject him to tribute. No wicked man will oppress him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down his adversaries. What I'm asking you to do there is to pray that God would sustain me, God would strengthen me, but God would give me the freedom to speak the truth in love. That I would have the freedom to speak the truth in love. And I want to tell you something. When you speak the truth, I don't have near as many problems with folks in the community that make no claim to having a reference with God as I do with some folks in the Christian community who don't like what we do. Sometimes you find when you're doing something for God, your biggest opposition comes from religious people, not from pagans. It was the religious people who killed Jesus. It was the religious people who stoned Stephen. It was the religious people who persecuted Paul. And when you stand for truth and you don't compromise it, it means that there's going to come opposition. And that is, can easily turn to oppression and a fear of men and a worry about what people think and a concern about how you appear. What I'm asking you to pray is that I would have no fear of man, that I would be willing and able to speak the truth with power and with authority, not my words, but the words from God's Word, and that I would stand on that unapologetically. And so I want to ask you to pray seven things. There are six in your notes. I'm going to give you seven. First of all, pray that God would give me wisdom as a leader. 
I need wisdom. I, I want to tell you something. I, I don't know it all. I can't figure it all out. It's beyond me. Uh, it, it's enough for me as a husband, as a dad, to try to lead my family, much less to try to lead a church of 3,000 people. So I need wisdom from God. So when you pray for me, pray that God will give me wisdom. Secondly, pray that God would give me discernment to know the right thing to do and to say. It is very easy to lose your focus. It is very easy to get your priorities out of line. And I need to have focus and have discernment in what I'm supposed to do and what I'm supposed to say and how I'm supposed to use my time. Thirdly, pray that God would protect my family from attacks from the evil one. Pray that God would protect my family. My daughter's at a uh, Baptist school in college, and uh, it's been real interesting because uh, in the process of going there, she has met uh, some people who have embraced a homosexual lifestyle. And she's trying to love them but tell them that's wrong. I mean, she's told them flat out, I don't agree with you, I don't support you, I don't think that's right. I don't, think that's a, I don't think God honors that, but she's trying to love her. And you know where she's getting her criticism from? From ministerial students who just want to throw rocks. I want to tell you something, folks. We never save pagans throwing rocks at them. You can preach against sin, but you better love sinners because they, they, they know you hate the sin. What they want to know is, do you love me? Jesus reached out to people who were blatant, vile sinners and loved them. He didn't love their sin. He didn't condone their lifestyle. He didn't approve of their choices, but he loved them because he knew what they could become if they gave their hearts to him. So pray for God to protect the family because I want to tell you something. The devil, Jack Taylor said one time, if the devil can't get to you, he will get to somebody who can get to you. And he has worked on our family as much probably in the last year as any time that I can ever remember to try to undermine and to try to destroy. Number five, pray my life verse. If you're a member of another church, I'd pray, I'd go to your pastor and I'd ask him what his life verse is. I don't believe you can have a life verse when you're eight years old. I don't think you've lived enough life. I don't believe you can have it when you're 15. But I think when you've lived a while, there will come a verse that begins to define your life and who you are. Mine is 2 Corinthians 4, 5. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. My job is to preach Jesus as Lord and to serve people for Christ's sake. Not to serve people for what I get out of it, not to serve people for recognition, but to serve people for Christ's sake so that in serving them, I represent Christ to them. Number five and number six, pray that God will use me to help other pastors and other ministers. I rarely go anywhere. I was in Atlanta this week for two days, and I met several people who get our church mail. I, I, number one, I didn't know some of them, and number two, I certainly didn't know they got our church mail out. And one of them said an interesting thing to me, something along this line. He said, he said, I hope that you keep writing your articles because there's times when I want to bail out and you remind me to stay with it. So keep writing them. See, I want to have a ministry with pastors and ministers because there's not a lot of people encouraging them. I know guys in churches that are getting beat up every week 
I mean, they're being verbally beaten up. Uh, their families are being verbally beaten up by members, and they're just in, they're in hostile environments, and they want to give up, and they want to quit. I probably average five emails a week from pastors and churches around this area in about a 50-mile radius. They're always asking me for some help or some idea or how do I deal with this or how do I confront this or how do I change this or how do I deal with this person that doesn't respond to my leadership. And, and, and I tell you, it's a burden to me to read those. It breaks my heart to read them. But I believe that God's given me an opportunity to minister to those men, and I pray that you would pray that I would take full use of that opportunity. Number seven, and this one comes from Vance Havner, to be quite honest. Pray that I would have the heart of a lamb and the height of a rhinoceros and not get the two confused. Does that make sense? Pray that I would have the heart of a lamb and the height of a rhinoceros and I wouldn't get the two confused and end up with the heart of a rhinoceros and the height of a lamb. It's easy to be thin-skinned. When you're in the public eye, when everybody in town has got an opinion about you, it's easy to let things that people say affect you. It's also easy for you to harden your heart and become uncaring. So pray for me that I'll keep a tender heart, but that I'll have a tough hide. All right, pray for the church leadership. It's there in your notes. I won't take a lot of time uh, to go over this, but pray for your staff, for protection, for growth. Pray for our secretaries. I hope you pray for those folks. Uh, if you're on hold, pray for the person that's about to answer the phone. Pray for our lay leadership, that they have a passion for excellence. Pray for our Sherwood Christian Academy, that we would make a difference in this community without compromise. Pray for our deacons that God will give them wisdom in making decisions and giving input and confronting issues. I asked a friend of mine who is on staff at a church that runs 4,000. I said, why has God blessed your church so much? And we talk about their prayer ministry and we talk about other things. But this, he said, Michael, I'll tell you why God's blessed our church. He said, because... Our leadership in our church is totally sold on the vision that God has given our pastor. We don't have 12 agendas or 15 agendas. The reasons God's blessed us is that we all figure out how we can help fulfill the vision that God's given to the pastor. Pray for the staff and pray for the secretaries and the school and the deacons that we work together and work in harmony to see what God has for us. Number three, pray for the membership. Now, I want you to turn to 1 Thessalonians 5, and if you'll listen quicker, we'll be through. 1 Thessalonians 5. This is a passage of accountability and responsibility. Paul is speaking to the church members, and he's saying, this is how you need to relate to one another. And in a prayer environment, this kind of stuff is not offensive. In fact, it is considered helpful, and it is received. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 14. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. Now, I thought about something between the two services. It's, it's amazing to me that we, we think it's right to admonish unruly children, but we never think it's right to admonish unruly church members who sometimes act like children and need to be corrected. He says, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, 
Be patient with everyone. Boy, I wish he hadn't said that. <laughs> be patient with everyone. How about just be patient with the ones I want to be patient with? But he didn't say that, did he? He said be patient with everyone. That means the person that when they come up to you, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard. I mean, you just get chills up your back, your hair stands on end, your teeth start to rattle, and your feelings fall out. He says, be patient with everyone. Not just the people you want to be patient with. Some of you need to quit elbowing the person by you. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another. Not just good for yourself. Not just what's good for me. What's good for one another? What's good for us? And for all people, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. But examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved completely. Without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. You know what you can do? You can substitute people's names in there. And you can pray those verses for people. In your Sunday school class, in your home, in your family, in the church. Now, I, I love this. I was talking to somebody, uh, in fact, I was talking to Warren Wiersbe this week, and we got to talking about this illustration of Jim Cimbala at Brooklyn Tabernacle, and I love this illustration. He's got a lot more nerve than I do. Uh, Jim Simbler says, you know, when people join and they line up across the front, I mean, they come from all kinds of backgrounds, you know, and there are a lot of things that they can be doing besides going to church. And, and so they come and they line up at the front, and he says, now, we're glad you're here. We're glad God saved you. We're glad that, that God has changed your life, and we want you to know as a church, as new members of the church family, we're here to help you. And if your car breaks down, we're going to try to help you. Your spouse leaves you, we're going to try to help you. Your children become prodigals, we're going to try to help you. You lose your job, we're going to try to help you. But if I find out as pastor that you're in the hallway murmuring and undermining and running people down, I'm going to help you out the door. And Warren said, you know, they never had that in that church. It's just a known rule. Unity is the key here. You know, I, I, I told Warren, I said, well, it must mean that Jim takes them and drop kicks some Jesus through the goalposts of life, I guess. And they go out the door. But you know what the problem with some pastors is and some churches is? They let unruly people go unchecked. And unruly people unchecked are like undisciplined children undisciplined. They become trouble down the road. You know, if you're in the military, it doesn't take you long to know what the rules are. And to know if you break those rules, there are consequences. Well, there are rules in the church. It's called unity. It's called love. It's called harmony. It's called peace. And those rules were written because God knew that the church is supposed to be a witness to the world for how people are supposed to get along. He didn't say they'll know you're Christians because you club one another. He said they'll know you're Christians because you love one another. So, last thing, pray for God's outpouring on the church. Let me just give you the verse, and evangelism is the first one, Isaiah 43, do not fear for I am with you, I will bring your offspring 
from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. Bring out the people who are blind, even though they have eyes, and the deaf, even though they have ears. We are to pray for God's outpouring in evangelism. After the first of the year, we will have another day of praying and calling 10,000 homes in this community. We called 10,000 homes last year. We will call 10,000 homes in 2001 on a Saturday. And then on a Saturday in 2002, we will call another 10,000 homes. That will cover almost every home in Albany and in Lee County. After that, we'll start over again to pray for people. Let me give you a statement that you need to understand. Souls are not one in preaching and teaching until they are one in prayer. Souls are not one in preaching and teaching until they are one in prayer. We're asking God to give us the opportunity to baptize 250 people a year. To do that, we have to be more committed to evangelism, but we also have to realize that Satan has blinded the eyes of unbelievers. That's what Paul says. We have to pray that the blind will see, that the deaf will hear the gospel, that they won't turn, a, turn their ears off and say, I don't want to hear that. That they will be open and receptive to the good news of Jesus Christ. And so we first of all pray for an outpouring of God in evangelism. He says to give them up, do not hold them back. We need to pray against the forces of evil that are holding back people and blinding their eyes to the good news. Secondly, in spiritual power. In spiritual power. I want you to turn to the book of Ephesians and then we're through. Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. And what Paul does is he summarizes every chapter in Ephesians with how big Jesus is. Ephesians was a great spiritually minded church. And when Paul is summarizing this church in Ephesians, he's also pointing them to Jesus Christ. And in Ephesians 1, 19 through 23, what he does here is he basically says that the power of Christ is so awesome that he has ascended above every other power. God has ascended above every other power. That's how powerful he is. So when we pray, we are not praying to somebody who's just on one rung of the ladder. We are praying to the God of all gods and the King of all kings. We are praying to the one who is in authority. And so Jesus is to be the Lord of our life because he has all power. Then he goes to chapter 2 in verses 19 through 22, and he says that Jesus is so great that he is able to reconcile Jews and Gentiles to his glory. He is able to reconcile Jews and Gentiles to his glory. His power is so incredible that he can take people from different cultures and different races and he can reconcile them to God for his glory. It's one of the great messages of the church of Jesus Christ. Now, if, if you've ever been an athlete of any kind, especially if you've ever played team sports, you know that in playing team sports or even in the military, there comes a point when you realize it's not about the color of the person who is next to you or what state he came from, or who, what college he attended, you're in something together that brings you together that is bigger than who you are personally. If you talk to most athletes, they will tell you 
if they've played long enough, they will tell you that they never notice color anymore because it's just about what does that person contribute to the team. Not what color is he, not what school did he go to. All that's laid aside. People that were in, in rival schools get on a professional team and they play together. Why? Because they have a common goal that's bigger than even their alma mater. And so they come together in a common purpose. Paul says that when Jesus is all-powerful, that he breaks down the walls that divide us. And the church needs to do that. And the community needs to see that. Thirdly, he comes to verse uh, chapter 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. He tells us that God is so powerful that he can do more than you can ever imagine. Whatever your wildest imagination about what God could do in this church, what God could do in this community, that Jesus Christ is so powerful, he could do more than that. Whatever you think it'd be impossible for God, go a little further, and that's what God can do. Now, I don't know about you, but I need that power. I think you need that power. I think we need that power. I think this community needs a church that has that kind of power. God has called us to make a difference in the 21st century. Not to rest on our laurels, not to glory in our past, but to build on it and to move forward. And we will do that successfully only in a prayer environment. And so we come back to what the disciples Lord, teach us to pray.